In her new book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity, Anne Glegg makes a major contribution to scholarship on American Buddhism. Glegg focuses on meditation-based convert Buddhist lineages in North America, and in particular, she is interested in the generational changes underway in these groups. The first generations of convert Buddhist teachers often modernized the tradition in distinctly American ways, and now Gen X and millennial Buddhists are re-engaging with the tradition, but bringing to their Buddhist practice and teaching new questions. The issues that they tackle and that Gleg addresses in her study include mindfulness as a secular and commercialized practice, sex scandals, and new technologies. These Buddhists ask how their communities should address racism and social injustice and what the goal of practice should be. Glegg sets her fine-grained ethnographic research within a larger discussion of Buddhist modernism, arguing for new ways to understand convert Buddhism in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Buddhist Studies. I'm Natasha Heller. Today, we'll be talking to Anne Glegg about her new book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. Uh, Hi, Natasha. Thank you for the invitation. So I wonder, Anne, if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got into this field of study. Yeah, sure. Um, So I think I first encountered Buddhism um, as a teenager through, I guess, what we would call beat Buddhism. So the Buddhism of, you know, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and Alan Watts. Um, And I kind of discovered those texts as a teenager and then a few years later, when it was time for me to, you know, go to university in, in England, I, I, I wanted to, you know, kind of start a more um, serious study of Buddhism and Hinduism. I was really attracted to uh, Buddhist and Hindu philosophy. So my first academic encounter with Buddhism came um, in 19, I think I went in 1992 to Bristol University. And I studied mostly there with Rupert Gethin and Paul Williams, who have both written quite influential textbooks on Buddhism. An introduction, uh, uh, Rupert Gethin's done a lot of work on Theravada Buddhism, and Paul Williams wrote a great book on Mahayana philosophy. Um, So that was my really first kind of existential and academic encounter with Buddhism. And then I went straight on to um, do my MA, and I was actually planning to I'd started off uh, studying, I wanted to study Chinese Buddhism and I was drawn to Hawaiian philosophy. So I actually went to Lancaster University, um, I think it was probably in 1995. Um, but I was really, you know, I was kind of challenged at Lancaster University by, it was, it was a time when um, postmodernism and post-structuralism and intersectional feminism was really taken off. So it kind of got me really questioning, um, you know, what really what were the relevance of of me as a young kind of queer kind of feminist, uh, you know, the relevance of of studying Buddhism. So that kind of threw me a little bit. So I ended up finishing my MA. I actually went in a more general religious studies uh, direction. And then I ended up taking, I think, about seven years out of school. Um, I spent a couple of those years in Asia practicing, actually practicing Buddhism um, in Nepal and India. And then I returned to academia. I went to Rice University um, in 2004 with the intention of studying with Anne Klein um, in Tibetan Buddhism and Jeffrey Kripal. And whilst at Rice, um, a few factors kind of led me more into the direction of American Buddhism. 
and also Hinduism in America. So my actual dissertation is not the book. It's a different, it's a related project, but a different project that was a kind of comparative study of Buddhism and Hinduism through a kind of American metaphysical lens. Um, and then my post, you know, since graduating from Rice in 2010, I kind of returned, focused more, you know, solely on Buddhist, Buddhism in America. Great. So, yeah, that's a little background. So I could tell because, you know, so much of your work in this book is fairly recent that this this must be just sort of an ongoing emerging project. How did you come to write this particular book? Yeah, well, yeah, it is definitely all happening in real time, which, you know, poses its own kind of challenges. Um, so with this particular book, essentially what happened was after I finished my dissertation, you know, my plan, of course, was to turn the dissertation in a, into a book. But, you know, like like a lot of, you know, recently minted uh graduates I you know really felt like I needed a break um so I, I basically embarked on a couple of uh separate kind of ethnographic projects so I did an ethnography of the East Bay Meditation Society uh, in Oakland California and I also did an ethnography of the Buddhist Geeks uh, online kind of community and although there were two you know on the face on the surface are very they're two very different communities but in kind of theorizing the ethno, you know, the ethnographic kind of data, I really, I really felt that Buddhist modernism, which, as you know, is the kind of dominant framework for understanding contemporary Buddhism, I really felt like it was limited, that it wasn't, you know, sufficient to account for what was happening in these two different communities. So I wrote two two, you know, two two separate articles, one in each community, in which I kind of theorized that you know, the the things that were happening in, in real time in these communities were best illuminated by thinking beyond modernity, by thinking into the postmodern, and in, in the case of the East Bay Meditation Society, the postcolonial. Um, so I just, you know, I published those two articles, and then essentially what happened was Franz Metcalf, who is a senior scholar in Buddhist studies, he was... I think one of the reviewers for the Buddhist Geeks article that was published in the Journal of Global Buddhism, and he kind of reached out to me, and we, you know, started a conversation about my uh, research. And he really, he really encouraged me to turn the article into a book. Like he was, you know, he basically said, "There's definitely enough for a book project here." Um, so I was, you know, still, I think, still, you know, kind of putting off changing the dissertation into a book. And so I was kind of grateful. I was, I had, I had, a, I think, more energy and curiosity around this project. Um, so, yeah, then I was really fortunate. I, you know, just kind of whipped up an introduction and um, just kind of fell into the hands of uh, Jennifer Banks, an editor at Yale. And she really, you know, kind of took a chance on me and, and got me a advanced contract and, you know, that kind of pushed push me forward. And then, yeah, the result is American Dharma. Right. Fantastic. So turning to the book itself, um, in the introduction, you explain that your work draws on both discourse analysis and multi-site ethnography. And you just mentioned ethnography in a couple of with the Buddhist geeks. Um, could you say something a little bit more about your sources from this project and how you carried out the research? Uh, yeah, well, the the project is very hybridic. You know, it, I think I also talk in the introduction. I, you know, locate myself as a scholar and my own positionality. And um, in a way, you know, I'm. I, I think in in many ways, my positionality is also quite 
postmodern kind of post-colonial. Um, and in terms of the methodology, I mean, essentially, the, for me, the primary question in the book was, you know, what is what's happening to Buddhist modernism? So I, you know, I look at North American convert lineages as a way to, to look at Buddhist modernism. So the book is called American Dharma. So the, the title of the book leads with the convert communities themselves. But for me, you know, intellectually, my, you know, primary question was really about what's happening with Buddhist modernism. Um, and so because I wasn't interested in just one community, I wanted to think about, you know, different spaces in which, you know, Buddhist modernist kind of phenomena was occur- occurring. So David McMahon's book, uh, The Making of Buddhist Modernism, which is a very foundational text for me and also, you know, in Buddhist studies, he, I think, correctly identifies, you know, the insight community and the uh, Zen communities as, you know, as, as really rich sites to think about Buddhist modernism. Um, and so I did multi-sited ethnography in these different communities. Um, and that involved, I mean, each chapter in a way has its own, is, is, is based in a mix of ethnography um, and textual discourse analysis. So I think the two ethnographically heavy chapters in the book um, are probably the Gen X uh, chapter on the Gen X teachers. So for that chapter, I interviewed, I think, 33 Gen X teachers. And those interviews um, took place uh, via Skype. I think they all took place via Skype um, because, you know, the teachers are all scattered all across America and, and some even in Europe. So Skype was a kind of lifesaver. So I did, you know, interviews between, I think, one and three hours um, and then follow up questions in, in, in nearly all of the cases. Um, and then, you know, for other chapters, um, you know, for example, there's a, the chapter on meditation. I um, went to I did some participant observation. So I went I think the chapter opens with a snapshot of Josh Corder. So I went to uh, Josh Corder's, I went to a retreat that he did in the Garrison Institute. I also went to his groups. He runs weekly groups. He has a sit in New York and in Brooklyn. So I attended some of those sits. Um, and then in other cases, um, some, so some of it was, you know, in person, in, you know, actual physical meditation retreat sites. Other, other eth- ethnographic research was done, you know, via Skype uh, interviews. Um, and then a lot of it was also done online. So with the pragmatic Dharma community, um, for example, that's also in that chapter, you know, that's an in, almost an entirely online um, community. So that just involved really hours um, and really over, you know, the course of several years of just kind of being on on the on the web boards and, you know, doing interviews with prominent uh, speakers. And with the Buddhist Geeks chapter, I, you know, basically went to the three um, conferences. They did, I think they did four conferences. I missed the first one, um, but I attended the next three. So it was very kind of hybridic, you know, in real, in real time ethnography and virtual time ethnography, and then a lot of interviews kind of uh, via Skype. Great. So you've already mentioned this idea of Buddhist modernism. And in the introduction, in the first chapter, you suggest that many of the phenomena that you see in contemporary meditation-based convert Buddhism um, in North America should be better understood as postmodern. 
could you explain the distinction for listeners? How do you see this yeah. difference? <laughs> okay, well, I just qualify it a little because I do have some hesitations around the postmodern. Um, so, you know, as you know, in my conclusion, I, you know, basically say, let's look at the postmodern, the postcolonial and the post-secular. So I think that, like, I, I wouldn't want to, I don't think it's a good idea to replace, you know, talking about Buddhist modernism with Buddhist postmodernism. And the reason being is that I do think the postmodern is a really, um, you know, contentious signifier. And it does, you know, it, it means different things to different people. So I, I think the postmodern is, you know, it, the way I use it in the book in the introduction is really as a broad socio, to, as a signifier to indicate broad sociocultural shifts that have kind of happened since, you know, the 1960s. Um, and I guess some of the main features of, you know, the postmodern would be, you know, first of all, and in, and both a both a continuation of modernity, so a hyper modernity, but also a critique of mater, of modernity, um, and so you've got these, you know, two kind of para, these two tracks that you know make that make up the postmodern as I understand it and use it, um, in the book. So I think, for example, you know, really to understand what's happening now is is necessary to kind of take a step back and think about Buddhist modernism. So when scholars like, you know, Don Lopez, um, David McMahon, you know, talk about Buddhist modernism, you know, they emphasize, you know, this the, a, a vision of Buddhism and form, not just a vision, but forms and lived communities of Buddhism that develop from the encounter between traditional Asian Buddhism and Western modernity under you know, the conditions of colonialism. And so the forms of Buddhism that kind of emerge are, you know, this image of the Buddha as a scientific Buddha. Um, you know, the Buddha is a kind of early scientist and Buddhism is the most rational religion. Um, and then also, you know, David McMahon, I think, really helpfully uses Charles Taylor's work on modernity and, and takes out the three strands of the Enlightenment lineage, Romanticism, and liberal Protestantism, and then looks at the ways in which, you know, they show up in forms of Buddhism. So I just mentioned the scientific Buddha. Obviously, that would be a good example of the Enlightenment lineage. You know, an example of the Romantic lineage would really be this kind of, you know, this very kind of psychological kind of therapeutic uh, kind of iterations of Buddhism. Um, and then liberal Protestantism, you know, a sense of, I think, of, you know, returning to the early suttas of the Buddha and really pri this privileging of meditation experience. Um, and I think, you know, also really key to Buddhist modernism is this distinction between, you know, essential Buddhism or authentic Buddhism and cultural Buddhism. Um, and so, and, and you know, the, the individual, you know, very individualistic. And so what I found in the communities that I was, you know, that I was looking at was that some of those really, you know, key characteristics of Buddhist modernism are actually coming under interrogation. So let me give you an example. So I think, you know, one clear example is that, you know, while meditation practice continues to be, 
you know, really important to the convert, you know, communities I look at. There's definitely a lot more, you know, reflection um, and action around, you know, that what happens after retreat, you know, what's, you know, what's, what's Buddhist practice beyond the meditation cushion and also, you know, what, what, what's the role of the Sangha? So there's a lot of movements towards not exactly recovering Sangha because it's not exactly a return to Sangha as, you know, understood in traditional Asian Buddhism, but there is a kind of revisioning and a kind of, um, celebration of community you know that that is kind of starting to happen in these communities and then I think around the you know essential cult you know the essential cultural Buddhism you know one way that divide is really being you know interrogated is around issues of race and the way in which that divide has been mapped on in American Buddhism has been kind of racialized so you know that you know often you know, white kind of converts have been, you know, mapped onto being practicing an essential Buddhism. The new Buddhism, you know, I think is what James Coleman kind of calls it in his in his text. Um, and you know, Asian heritage communities have been seen as you know cultural Buddhism. So I think you're seeing a lot of you know interrogation of that and um, reflections on you know the. The, the fact that, you know, all, but all Buddhisms are enculturated. Um, so, so yeah, so I guess, you know, there's some of the ways on the ground in which changes are happening, which put, you know, some pressure on a modernist paradigm. And so what I do in the book is I basically, you know, take these case studies and I look at, at the end of the case studies, I, I kind of, basically argue that what's happening in these case studies can't be contained within Buddhist modernism. So even even with like the psychologization of Buddhism, um, I, I note that, you know, psychology is still a massively influential discourse within Buddhist communities, but there is a lot more conversation around, you know, differentiating between Buddhism and, you know, psychotherapy you know, and not kind of, you know, I argue not just kind of, you know, merging them together. Um, and so I think I call, I, I use Bill Parsons' term and say these are more dialogical approaches that recognize difference. And so I, th- I then theorize that recognition of difference, you know, through a postmodern and a kind of post-colonial um, lens. Right. So, uh, sorry, there was a lot there. Was that did I did I kind of unpack? Yeah, I think so. Um, if I can backtrack a little bit, I'm wondering. You know, in chapter one is titled "Buddhist Modernism from Asia to America." I'm wondering if you could say a little something about how you see modernism as playing out differently. You know, it's, before we get to the, the the kinds of studies that you're doing, sort of in the moment. Um, how Buddhist modernism played out differently in Asia and in America. So what are the key features that we might look for? Um, that's a, I think that's a really excellent question. So I think that, you know, for example, you know, when there was, a, as you know, there's been a lot of critiques um, of, the, of the mindfulness movement, uh, from in, a lot of them from engaged Buddhists. And in the critiques of the mindfulness movement, um, you know, like say a scholar who is critiquing, say someone like John Kabat-Zinn, you know, they they point out, you know, they problematize the way that John Kabat-Zinn 
uh, differentiates between Buddhism and the Dharma, you know, and they think this, you know, they think this is kind of problematic because, you know, it basically lends itself to a form of cultural appropriation. Like it makes the Dharma a kind of free floating entity that is, you know, basically there for anyone to kind of claim ownership of in a way that, you know, erases, you know, Asian heritage communities. Um, but I think, you know, I think that's a really strong argument. But I think, you know, it's also a little problematic in the sense that, you know, you will you do find that same distinction between someone like Gwenka, you know, so someone like Gwenka, um, you know, who is, you know, I think one of the you know major Asian Buddhist modernists. Um, you know, he's he's very clear. He, he often di- differentiates between, you know, essentially cultural Buddhism and the Dharma as this kind of living, you know, religious, spiritual kind of force. But so the rhetoric is the same. You do find this distinction between, you know, in a sense, religion, Buddhism and the Dharma. But I think a big difference is that, you know, this distinction is happening in cultures that are really soaked in a Buddhist heritage. And so the context, I think, holds that distinction in a different way than a context in America, which is a highly, you know, individualistic society and, you know, a, you know, a, a kind of a very commodified uh, society. Um, and then I think, you know, with, you know, even though there is, you know, you know, in, a, in you know, thinking about, you know, Burma and Eric Braun's book, you know, The Birth of Insight, you know, this is where the, you know, the mass kind of meditation movements start. So there is this kind of forefronting and privileging of meditation in Asian, you know, modern Buddhist modernism. Um, but it's also, again, you know, it does take place within this wider backdrop of monastics teaching, you know, it starts off, you know, monastics teaching meditation and, you know, more kind of articulation of the wider Buddhist path, you know, like, you know, um, Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist ethics, Buddhist soteriology. So I think that, you know, the main difference is that the modernist features in Asian Buddhist modernism are kind of anchored to, you know, traditional kind of Buddhist kind of cultures and living communities um, in a way that seems to provide a different kind of balance than what happens when Asian, you know, when Buddhist modernism comes over to North America. And I think that, you know, just just kind of, I think communities themselves and maybe even scholars are just kind of realizing, you know, the impact of the cultural, you know, having that cultural container or having a, what happens in a different cultural container. Um, so, so yeah, so I'd, I'd say that, you know, there's much more of a, an anchor um, for Buddhism in, in, in Asian Buddhist modernism um, than there, in, in Asia than there is when, when it comes, you know, over to North America. Um, does, does, that, does, that, does that make sense? Yes. So in other words, the cultural context for Buddhist modernism is really important. Um, yeah, I think it's like super, super important because um, like, for example, in, in American Dharma, uh, in, I think it is in, it's either in my introduction or in chapter one, you know, I use, I kind of summarize David's work. So, you know, massively really want to give a shout out to David because his work's been hugely important for my work and I know many others. Um, so I, you know, I, I kind of use his description 
of uh, Buddhist modernism. But then I also add, you know, that another feature of Buddhist modernism in North America is white privilege. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that when you know this, you know, when the distinction between Dharma and Buddhism as a religion, you know, when that take when that's when that's articulated in a you know, essentially a society with an ongoing history of racism, you know, as well as individualism, it, it, ma- it becomes racialized in a really, you know, in a really problematic way. Um, so, so, you know, that, that would be, I think, you know, in my book, one really graspable example of that kind of slippage of what happens with Buddhist modernist rhetoric and values in a different cultural context than, you know, in, in, than South Asia or, you know, East Asia in which there is this, you know, these heritage, you know, com- communities and monastic communities, much, you know, much deeper roots. Right. So beginning with chapter two, each chapter looks at an issue or challenge to the contemporary Buddhist community in greater depth. So chapter two takes up the mindfulness movement. How do North American convert Buddhists position themselves in relation to mindfulness teachings and practices? Yeah, well, again, in multiple ways. So you've got on the one hand, you know, some of the, you know, major players, you know, the main drivers in the secular mindfulness movement, you know, are are teachers or, you know, senior students in you know, the insight community or, you know, the Zen community. Um, and so, you know, people like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, and also Asian, Asian Buddhist modernists like Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, they've been very, you know, enthusiastic about mindfulness and, you know, for the most part supported John Kabat-Zinn's vision. Um, but then, you know, as well as the drivers, you've also got, you know, a, a kind of backlash from other concerned Buddhists. Um, I'd say there were two main groups, you know, of backlashes, uh, backlash Buddhists. <laughs> so I'd say there are the, more the traditionalists, and I'm, you can't see me, but I'm, you know, putting everything in quotation marks because obviously the terms are somewhat limited. Um, but, you know, there's a traditionalist who, you know, I would say, I think Alan, uh, what's his name? Alan Wallace was an early... Uh, fielded an early critique of mindfulness secular mindfulness and even mindfulness in the insight community and i think maybe bhikkhu bodhi um ajan jeff uh, so the traditionalists are basically their their issue is they're concerned with the difference between secular mindfulness and mindfulness as you find it in the you know the pali canon um and so they're really looking at you know, you know, the concern that like the ethical foundations of mindfulness have, have dropped out of the picture or their concern that, you know, mindfulness, you know, isn't, you know, geared towards, you know, nirvana, that it's geared towards stress reduction. Um, so there's been a kind of, you know, critique from that side. And then another major body of critique has come from engaged Buddhists. And so with engaged Buddhists, I think a really good example would be David Loy. Uh, and Ron Purse's Beyond Mac Mindfulness article. And so essentially what they do is they combine a kind of traditional traditionalist critique with, you know, what's really a kind of neo-Marxist critique of the ways in which mindfulness is being, you know, individualized and kind of co-opted by neoliberalism. 
and they're particularly concerned that secular mindfulness doesn't address, you know, the structural sources of, you know, societal kind of injustices. Um, But of course, you know, you don't find that concern in the Pali canon either. You know, the Buddha isn't really, you know, isn't concerned. I mean, there are readings, you know, there are are these, you know, readings now of the, you know, of Buddhism that are, you know, you know, creative hermeneutical readings of Buddhism that are thinking, you know, about, you know, Dukkha as a kind of, on a collective level. But I think a strict traditionalist reading, you know, would not find, you know, would not would not critique secular mindfulness on those grounds. Um, but they're kind of merged together in, in the kind of engaged Buddhist critiques um, in, a, in a kind of very distinct way. Hmm. Um, so, so that's like, so you've got the, you know, you've got the advocates and then you've got the, the critiques. And then I think I'd, if, if I've got, if, if you don't mind, I'll also say there's a third, you know, a third wave, which I think are kind of what Vince Horn calls second generation mindfulness. So I think these are kind of Buddhists who are really, you know, invested in, you know, secular mindfulness or secular forms of metta or compassion meditation are really kind of taking the critiques on board and are trying to, you know, revision, you know, deeper and more kind of ethical versions of secular mindfulness. So I'd, I'd say I wanted, to, I, I don't, I don't, I do give some examples in my book, but I'd like to, you know, mention Courage of Care. So Courage of Care is a, I think, a collective organization uh, running out of the uh, I think, you know, East Bay maybe, or it's in, it's in San Francisco. And I think they're doing work, which is kind of, you know, thinking of mindfulness through a kind of critical lens, but still a commitment to teaching mindfulness outside of a traditional Buddhist context. That's a fascinating way of explaining how these groups have responded to the critiques that are coming out. So in chapter three, you look at sex scandals. Um, in uh, convert Buddhist groups. How have these been dealt with, and how has having to confront issues of sexual abu- abuse reshaped convert Buddhism? Yeah, this was, you know, one of, for me one of the most interesting and also kind of challenging kind of chapters. So, you know, as you know, you know, charges of sex charges and you know, um, actual cases, not just allegations, but you know, proper cases, proved cases, documented cases of sexual assault, abuse, and misconduct um, have been, you know, documented since the 1980s across convert lineages. Um, and I think in this, in this, I've written before on this in this topic, but in the book. I, I wanted to look at specific, there's a lot of different ways that communities have responded, really ranging from, you know, sticking their heads in the sand to, you know, reforming much more democratic structures and much more transparent policies. Um, but what I look at in the book is one specific way in which communities have incorporated basically psychological, psychotherapeutic, psychoanalytical um, discourses and practices in the communities and so essentially in these cases I think you know the communities themselves or you know other community members have said you know the Buddhist training that we have received at least as we have received it does not contain 
enough resources in and of itself to prevent these abuses happening and also to respond adequately to these abuses. And so they've advocated for bringing in, you know, a therapist to come and work with the communities um, to, you know, institute psychotherapeutic training as part of, you know, the teacher training programs within these communities. Um, and so I think in, the, in that chapter, I look at Barry Majid. So Barry Majid uh, runs a sangha in New York City, and he's also a psychoanalyst himself. So he was, you know, I think already kind of geared to look at things through a psychoanalytic lens. He's a Dharma student of Charlotte uh, Jocko Beck. Um, and Charlotte, you know, so it, it's quite interesting because Charlotte, sorry, Charlotte Jocko Beck also in her books, which, you know, she had, she had her own sangha, I think it was in California, but her books were also really influential, you know, to wider populations of Zen practitioners. And so she really drew attention to the ways in which certain, you know, certain aspects of emotional life weren't really addressed by Zen practice. And so I think Barry Majid, you know, basically took that further so in in his series of books, he really you know you know calls on other Zen practitioners to draw on these you know psychoanalytic bodies of knowledge to think about intersubjectivity, to think about narcissism um, as part of their ongoing training um, as you know Zen practitioners and Zen teachers. Um, Grace Shreason has done so much work; she's been a kind of phenomenal figure. She actually ran a training program. Unfortunately, she retired and the program's kind of ended for now, um, which I say unfortunately because I do think there's a real need for, for such programs. So I think her program was called Spot Training. And essentially what she would do was it was her and I think about another five seniors and teachers. Um, I think they were mostly from Soto Zen lineages across Sangas, but all I think in Soto Zen. So they'd run, I think, six-week or eight-week workshops at her monastery and her training center at the time in Northern California, where, you know, different, you know, priests would apply, and then they'd do a lot of, you know, different kind of forms of training. Um, one thing that they did, which I thought was quite interesting, was kind of role play. So they'd do, you know, role plays around how to maintain you know, appropriate boundaries as a teacher and also as a student, you know, so so she was, you know, sharing a lot of the material with me, you know, it would be like, okay, so, you know, you're a, you're a senior student and, you know, your, you know, her teacher makes this, you know, inappropriate remark about, you know, what something you're wearing or, you know, you know, something that's, you know, really inappropriate, you know, sexualized, like how might you, you know, what's a good way to respond so I think just, you know, very like on the ground kind of training that, you know, that that wasn't, you know, that, 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 that in the in the groups, because there was such an emphasis on, you know, meditation practice and maybe some ritual, of course, in Soto Zen, you know, those actual, you know, more interpersonal kind of um, trainings were not, you know, were not offered in, you know, via their own kind of Japanese teachers. So this has been something that American Buddhists have really had to deal with that wasn't coming from the Asian Buddhist tradition. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's kind of really interesting because, I mean, again, you know, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, these changes, you know, are, are, are they're, they're a reaction to and a continuing conversation with the Buddhist modernist forms they inherited. 
So, you know, someone like Grace Shearson, you know, you know, she says explicitly, you know, we didn't get, you know, the kind of, you know, full on training that a Japanese, you know, priest would get in Japan. You know, the whole tra- the tradition didn't come to us wholesale. You know, we did get this fragmented, you know, we got we they got Buddhist modernism. You know, so they they rec- the the Buddhist some of the Buddhist practitioners themselves are recognizing, you know, what they inherited was you know a distinct form of Buddhism and not you know necessarily the whole picture. So so in a way, you know, in some ways, I guess you know that made me interested, you know, to ask, well, you know, would it have been enough? You know, would it be enough just to get the full you know, so as as we're talking about, you know, Soto Zen, like, is it enough to get the full Soto Zen training? You know, if you went to Japan and you brought that, you know, those kind of structures back more, you know, complete, you know, would that be enough to prevent, you know, sexual abuse and sexual misconduct? Um, and most of the, so I, you know, I asked, I asked the participants, the interviewees that, and most of them, you know, felt like, well, no, even if they did get the full training, it wouldn't be enough because, of course you know, it's a different cultural context with, you know, different sexual, you know, mores and ethics. And, you know, so, so I think, you know, that's a separate question. You know, one question is, you know, what are the limits of the Buddhist modernist forms themselves? And then, you know, would, you know, a more traditional Buddhist, you know, train and whatever, I mean, even to say that is, is somewhat speculative because of course, you know, Buddhist modernism impacted, you know, you know, the Japanese lineages on the ground as well. Um, so, so in a sense, it's like, you know, I don't think, I'm not sure that many people, or that, that many people I interviewed at least think, you know, there are enough resources in traditional, you know, Buddhism to traditional Zen or Zen modernism. Like, I think there is a recognition or a feeling that, you know, this is a unique, you know, cultural socio-cultural moment and historic moment and in a way you know new new forms need to be introduced into to buddhism um but um, i should add that there are some people who who reject that there are some practitioners who also said and i i, I think i you know I, I break this up in the book um in a, in a more kind of eloquent and coherent way but there are you know there were practitioners who said we don't need psychotherapy all we actually need to do is follow Buddhist, you know, the Buddhist precepts properly. And if everyone just practices the Buddhist precepts, these problems won't won't occur, you know. Or if we, you know, have, you know, more. Some people said if we had like more segregated uh, communities, you know, gender wise, and the problems wouldn't occur. You know, that, obviously that's quite heterosexual, quite heterosexist. Um, but but the, what 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 I want to point out is there are some practitioners who who don't think that we need. You know, by we, I mean, Buddhist communities need to bring in, you know, psychotherapy or communication training or, you know, these other new forms. Um, you know, they just think if you just practice Buddhism properly, then there wouldn't be, a, you know, i.e. as they understand traditional Buddhism, that there wouldn't be a problem. So it is quite complicated. There are these different, you know, these different positions in the in the wider field. Right. And so these actually these these two these different positions come up in chapter four, especially relating to psychotherapy. Chapter four is titled Meditation and Awakening in the American Vipassana Network. 
and it looks at the goals of Buddhist practice. Um, and as I see it, you talk about two main approaches, one that is more relational, that integrates insights from psychotherapy, and the one that is more traditional, meaning that it draws on the Buddhist canon and it is therefore somewhat more goal-oriented. Is that an accurate characterization? Yeah. And can yeah, you expand yeah, on these distinctions? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as I say, you know, I started the book with the main question for me was, what is happening with Buddhist modernism? Um, and so I take, you know, I, I wanted to give examples of the different lineages. So with the mindfulness chapter, I looked at, you know, what's happening with the Enlightenment lineage. And mindfulness, of course, you know, is a great example of the Enlightenment lineage. And then with the psycho, the, the sex scandals chapter, I look at what's happening with romanticism. Um, because, you know, psychology is, you know, uh, to modern uh, to uh, romanticism. And so with this chapter, I wanted to focus on, you know, meditation as one of the key characteristics of Buddhist modernism. And what I found, so I thought, you know, the inside community and, you know, the, the offshoots from the inside community is a perfect kind of case study. And so, yeah, what I found was there were two you know, main approaches that I had kind of, that I found within these communities. So I think one approach I call the, I think it's called, I call it the relational integrative. And so I, and then I use examples. So I look at Jack Cornfield as a, an example of a boomer teacher who really exemplifies a relational integrative current and I look at Josh Corder as a Gen X teacher who kind of continues that relational integrative current and then I the second current I call I think the textual technical and I think I look at let's see I look at um, pragmatic dharma as an example um, and also this interest in the jhanas um, and so with the roman I'll just I'll just talk about briefly each one. So with the ro- romantic, sorry, the relational integrative um current, I basically look at like how in like, you know, Jack Cornfield's kind of body of work, both his books, um, which have been, you know, massive bestsellers, hugely influential in shaping kind of the insight community, and also I draw on ethnography that I did at Spirit Rock. Um I look at how he articulates meditation in a very therapeutic way. Um, and so he talks about, you know, he, he also, I also, it's really interesting because these, they also, they also become gendered. So he talks about meditation as in a very, as a kind of fem, in a kind of feminine way, as a kind of, you know, as a, using like me, metaphors of receptivity and just kind of being with what is and not striving for meditation attainments. So he kind of rejects, you know, he kind of he, he kind of says you know these the path you know the path of insight you know don't get hung up on it it's just more like an aspiration rather than a reality and it essentially kind of domesticates you know the dharma he talks about you know being with your family and and family life as practice um and he actually identifies and legitimates his approach to meditation through ajan char from the Thai forest tradition so you know just as a kind of some background information you know I'd say that the insight community has been really influenced by the Burmese lineage lineage of Mahasi Sawador and also the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah Um, and so he basically really says you know Ajahn Chah 
wasn't interested in attainment. He was much interested in integration and just meeting life on its own terms type of thing. Um, and so I just give a lot of different examples of the way that approach to meditation shows up. And I say that, you know, one of the main kind of motifs in that lineage is basically a kind of rejection of this very, you know, intense meditation practice that you can go on retreat, you know, and get enlightened or, you know, reach the, you know, the stream entry, the stage of stream entry in, you know, 10 days. Um, and But then I look at, you know, the other stream in the insight community. Um, I take pragmatic dharma as one of the examples. And basically pragmatic dharma is in, in some ways a kind of reaction against the kind of, you know, Jack Cornfield kind of domestication of dharma. And they're really into like, let's return to you know, the Buddha Gosa's path of purification, you know, the stages of insight. And they're really excited about basically mapping meditation progress. And so if you go on the kind of pragmatic Dharma websites, you know, you'll see all of these textual references uh, and, you know, these claims to by these, you know, meditators you know, to have reached like, you know, this stage of the path. And so they'll give a first person account of their meditation practice. And then they'll say, I reached, you know, this stage of, you know, Buddha Gosa, you know, using Buddha Gosa's kind of path of purification. You know, they'll, they'll draw on the texts, you know, the commentaries, um, the textual commentaries on meditation. Um, and so I also notice there's also a, the, the, the very agenda that is masculine um, and they also gender themselves as masculine. You know, they, a lot of those practitioners also claim this is a kind of alternative, you know, um, approach to, you know, this wishy-washy, you know, daily life as practice. Um, and that, so then, so I basically track those two lineages. And then in the conclusion of the chapter, I basically look at the ways in which those lineages both continue you know, the modernist emphasis on meditation, but also kind of push back against it as well. And so, for example, one way that the Jack Cornfield kind of relational integrative lineage 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 push push pushes back against it is that it is very critical it does tend to be really critical of that kind of intensive meditation retreat practice. Like it is really calling for a recontextualization of meditation practice. Like it says, you know, meditation is just one part of the path and it has been, you know, really overemphasized in, you know, uh, at the start in our communities. Um, but what's kind of interesting about it is that it doesn't go back to the traditional Noble Eightfold path. It, it tries to, it kind of, re, it doesn't, you know, return, but it tries to, open a new context it tries to recontextualize it in a new container which you know draws on I guess more kind of modernist elements um, and then I think with the textual technical lineage you know in some ways that's a kind of hyper modernity so it really kind of runs with you know kind of the Buddhist modernist emphasis on meditation um, but one interesting feature and I think this is something Eric Braun's also written on is that you do find there has been a huge interest in jhana uh, meditation within these communities as well, and also a kind of 
interest in more you know kind of psychic phenomena and kind of you know these terms problematic as I say but you know the more kind of supernatural elements of you know Theravada Buddhism that were kind of discarded in the initial and in the initial modernization kind of movement so again in both lineages you've got this kind of you know continuation but also counter movements to modernity which which I think are, are very postmodern in that sense that you do have this you know kind of contradictory you know both continuations and counterings kind of happening there so yeah it's a bit complicated but I think that's a chapter which hopefully when the you know if, if listeners read the chapter that the arguments are a little more clear right so one of the things you've pointed to is the importance of context and Already you've mentioned that white privilege is in a really important context for understanding American Buddhism. Uh, In chapter five, you focus specifically on race and racism in North American convert Buddhism. How have different groups addressed this problem? And how do people of color see themselves within a predominantly white Buddhist community? Hmm. Yeah, this was another really difficult chapter to write. Um, And also, you know, especially as a white researcher, have to you know really be take a lot of care in how I represent uh, Buddhists of color um, and represent them you know in a way that kind of a, you know advances them and you know doesn't kind of assimilate them to my my scholarship. So I think you know essentially you know similar actually to the you know claims of sexual you know abuse and misconduct you know there's being work on trying to challenge racism and white privilege in convert communities has really been going on for over, you know, two decades uh, in convert communities. Um, You know, one landmark kind of document is making the invisible visible, healing racism in our Buddhist communities. And that's a book that's, it's kind of a booklet that's available free online. And I really urge, you know, uh, listeners to kind of check it out. Um, but that was presented, um, you know, at the turn of the millennium um, to the Buddhist Teachers Council at Spirit Rock. I think His Holiness the Dalai Lama was actually present. And, you know, the document opens and says, you know, for many years now we've been trying to make, you know, teachers, white teachers and Sangha members aware that, you know, that, you know, the same kind of racism in larger society is happening also in our sanghas um but you know nothing really happened well things were always happening but i think the mainstream communities have been so resistant to really hearing you know these critiques and responding to them but you know a lot of things have been happening of course you know on the ground buddhists of color and their white allies have been you know working so hard for over two decades to make changes but I think a lot of changes have happened recently in the last five years in terms of, you know, this work that's been happening, you know, on the margins and how exhausted must it have been for Buddhists of colour and, you know, all this time. But, you know, it's finally, you know, coming into the mainstream. So in the chapter, um, you know, I, I, I'd say, you know, there are, there are different communities that are have kind of risen to the forefront. So... Um, I'd say, you know, first of all, East Bay Meditation Society in Oakland, California, has been at the absolute forefront of racial justice work and diversity work. Um, and, you know, the, some of the teachers there have been, 
not only that they've not only created a center from the start with the main intention to create a much more racially diverse center that was that actually looked like the community that it was placed in um but the the teachers you know people like Larry Young and um Mushim Patricia Aikida and many more um have been you know traveling to other buddhist communities and doing work with them um and so in the book I'll I'll return to the community I look at in the book um in the book, I look at the Insight community of Washington. Um, it's a community that started the lead teacher, the head teacher, the most well-known teacher there is Tara Brack. Um, and so basically, you know, what happened in the, I, I offer a kind of short history of that community. And essentially, I think, you know, they started their work, I think, about 15 years um, I think they started off with a small group, a mixed group of, you know, white Buddhists and Buddhists of color. That was their first attempt. And I think, you know, it really fell, fell apart really quickly. Um, you know, it wasn't, a, I think, you know, and the teacher said we didn't, we hadn't, we didn't have the skills or the awareness to basically create a safe enough kind of container for, for the Buddhists of color. And so but essentially what grew out of that group was a uh, lot Sarmiento developed, who identifies as a uh, gender queer Buddhist of color. Law started two groups: an affinity group for people of color and an affinity group for LGBTQI populations. And then a white sangha member started a kind of white awareness group. Um, and so, you know, you had these different groups within the larger sangha um, doing, you know, doing the work, and they often faced a lot of resistance and hostility from the larger sangha you know they were really the larger sangha were i think quite threatened you know they i think a lot of the essentially i think you know a lot of the a lot of the mainstream dominant cultures don't understand the need for distinct groups and so they assume that the sangha is already you know a unified safe space so they, they see the affinity groups as, you know, dividing an already united sangha rather than as providing spaces for people who, you know, don't, aren't, the, the mainstream sangha isn't, you know, a safe place for. Um, so there were these, you know, separate groups happening. And then, you know, some, I think, really painful things happened in the in the community. And then I think the teachers and, and the white teachers and the white, you know, people in kind of leadership positions really realize that, you know, this was a really issue for the wider Sangha and not just for these, you know, marginalized populations. So I think they actually did a year long training with Eleanor Hancock, who runs the White Awake trainings. Um, and they, I think it was a year longer, it could have been longer. And they also did a, a friendship group that ran, I think, for about a year and a half. And then they brought in, you know, cons- diversity con- con- consultation. And so there's just so much work that, you know, happened in that sangha. Um, and there's so much work that needs to happen in so many sanghas. Um, one, I, I do want to give a shout out. I'm really excited. I'm an editor now for the Journal of Global Buddhism. And we're about to publish a fantastic article. Um, there's three authors on the article. The only one whose name I can remember is Craig Haas right now. But that's a really very uh, rigorously based social scientific study of, you know, the kind of work that needs to be done to bring more racial justice uh, in these majority white sanghas. So I think it's going to be a terrific, 
resource for Buddhist communities. I also want to talk about the importance of the teacher training program. So the Insight community, um, I think at one point there were something like 375 uh, Insight teachers, trained teachers, and only, I think, I think only six of them identified as teachers of colour. So, you know, the percentages were like horrifically low. And having, you know, teachers of colour is so important, you know, to, you know, attract and to retain, you know, diverse kind of sanghas. And so the Insight community really has prioritised racial diversity for its new teacher training programme. But the history of that teacher training programme is in itself a kind of heartbreaking history and, you know, one that I, you know, I'm not, it was really hard as an ethnographer, you know, to track that, the the history of that programme, because when I started the chapter, the programme was initially going to be run by both Spirit Rock and the Insight Meditation Society as a joint, kind of a joint effort. And I actually wrote the first draft of the chapter under that assumption. And then, you know, the, 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 program the 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 training program broke down and you know I think it was just an extremely you know exhausting and painful process for the people involved and the end result is that Spirit Rock is running its own program and and IMS is running its own program but I think that is going to be a really you know big I think it's going to have a really big impact on racial justice work because I think there's you know it's gonna I think it's something like it's going to increase teachers of colour by something like 330%. Because I think combined together, I think it's something like 80 or 90% of the trainees are, you know, teachers of colour. So I'm really excited to see how those teachers, you know, take their training back into their local communities and the kind of, you know, wider impact that's going to have on the Insight community. So, yeah, I hope, I hope a graduate student maybe picks up that project. Right. So this is a place where what you talk about in Chapter 5 um, really is ongoing and there's more work to be done both within the communities and by scholars who are looking at these communities. Yeah, I mean, there's so many levels to, to it. And I think that I think one of the things that, you know, as someone might, you know, you know, who, you know, also trying to, you know, work always to, you know, develop my own racial kind of justice uh, awareness and comp- skills and capacity is it, it is an ongoing learning process. I think for all you know, white Buddhist scholars and practitioners, um, you know, one of the things that has kind of heartened me is to see that you know there is um, more white awareness groups happening in sanghas, um, and so you know, historically, you know, there's been more, you know, there's been these affinity groups, affinity sits, you know, weekly sits for people of colour, retreats for people, for Buddhists or people of colour to do. Um, But I think that, you know, I think white teachers are finally realising, oh, this isn't like a, it's not a minority problem, it's a mainstream sangha problem. Like, if we want, you know, our sanghas to look like, you know, the communities, the cities that we are, you know, located in, you know, we have to change the culture of our sanghas. So, you know, one way that, that I think some, you know, some groups are trying to do that is by running these white awareness uh, groups. So I was at the Soto Zen Buddhist Association Conference, which is a conference for Soto Zen priests in North America. And I was, I gave, I actually gave a keynote on Buddhism and whiteness. Um, 
And I was really heartened to find, you know, several people kind of approached me and said, oh, you know, I'm running a center in Minnesota and we've been doing a white awareness group for the last, you know, nine months or I'm running a center in Oregon and we did, you know, two six month, you know, white awake, white awareness kind of, you know, trainings. Um, in the you know like what does it mean to be white in the context of Buddhist teachings? So you know we're seeing these kind of in, in a way they're like new Buddhist practice forms, right? It's a kind of combination of thinking about you know the awarenesses and the forms of knowledge that critical race theory um, and diversity and inclusion trainings give, and you know putting those kind of forms of knowledges and practices in dialogue with Buddhist practice. So in a way, you know, like similar to what I was talking about earlier, you know, with the, you know, the dialogue between depth psychology and Buddhism that's happened, been happening and accelerated after the, you know, in the wake of the sexual abuse and misconduct. We're also seeing, you know, another dialogue between, you know, critical race kind of consciousness and Buddhism. You know, and and I as a you know as an ethnographer of you know contemporary Buddhism, I find that tremendously exciting, um, as well as ethically you know very positive. But I also should add that as well as these groups you know starting to kind of form, and um, there's also a tremendous opposition towards them. You know, so there's a lot of Buddhists who feel you know that this isn't Buddhism, and this is you know basically essentially like the neo-Marxist, you know, really, you know, I'm seeing all the time, you know, even tracking some of my own research online, you know, the comment thread is like, you know, this is a neo, sorry, the neo-Marxist takeover of Buddhism. This is, you know, the leftist kind of takeover. This is not real Buddhism. So there is, you know, considerable back or I wouldn't even say backlash because I think the the you know there's the opposition has been ongoing you know they the groups face opposition in bringing racial justice work to the sanghas and there's continual opposition when when the work starts and I think that the opposition you know I think it, it it's also quite it's a bit like the mindfulness uh kind of responses because within the opposition I'm seeing you know, I'm seeing like a more like say again in quotations a more traditionalist. How does this kind of fit with Buddhism? And you know, isn't this a little intention with you know Buddhist practices? And then I'm seeing a more what feels almost like a kind of right wing kind of you know what kind of this you know I actually I've been using playing with the term the Buddhist culture wars you know where it's like this is the leftist takeover like there's there's clearly like the person who's delivering this critique is clearly speaking from a kind of right-wing perspective you know which is a little different than the traditionalist kind of perspective um the kind of merging a kind of traditional Buddhism with a kind of right-wing politic, I would say. Um, so, yeah, so that's, like, so fascinating to me in the way in which, you know, there are these, you know, I'd say sexual abuse and misconduct and racial justice are becoming these real, like, sites of struggle in American Buddhism in ways that is quite 
analogous to, you know, the culture wars in Christianity, you know, where you've got the kind of conservative, you know, versus kind of more liberal kind of Christian um, kind of debates and hermeneutics around what real Christianity is or what real Buddhism is. Right. Um, yeah, really fascinating. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling. So in chapter six, you talk about technology um, in a convert Buddhist context. And I assume this is less controversial than some of these other <laughs> issues, uh, but I don't know. So can you give us a sense of uh, wh- how would you characterize the use of technology in these contexts and how has it changed over time? Yeah, well, I mean, it is maybe a little less, definitely, I felt, yeah, less controversial, but also quite complex. So this was a chapter that I was kind of most looking forward to in the sense that I was just planning originally uh, to use my Buddhist Geeks article, you know, it was like I can use one previous, you know, published article. So it was like, oh, that would be my easy chapter. Um, But so I'd I'd written, you know, already on Buddhist Geeks for the Journal of Global Buddhism. Um, and in, you know, but, but essentially what happened, again, it was really, an, it was kind of a little frustrating. So I was just about to, you know, I thought I was nearly finished with the book. And then I suddenly got an email from Vince Horn, who is, you know, one of the founders of Buddhist Geeks that, you know, informed me that Buddhist Geeks was dead, you know, that they were, they were basically, you know, closing Buddhist Geeks and starting their, you know, their new project of Meditate IO. So that was, you know, a bit stressful for me because I basically had to kind of rewrite a new chapter again. And so that chapter basically looks at the trajectory of Buddhist geeks and meditate IO and asks, you know, what does it tell us about Buddhism and technology? And so I think, um, you know, essentially, you know, the, you know, technology, um, you know, the I'd say I'd say one way that technology has impacted Buddhist modernism is through generational shifts. So Vince, Vince Horn and Emily Horn and uh, Ryan Oakley, I think his name is, he was one of the original founders, you know, from the very start of their project with Buddhist geeks, you know, they identified themselves as millennials. And they said, you know, we want to do Buddhism differently than the boomer generation. You know, the, they didn't use they didn't say modernists, you know, because obviously they're theoretical terms, but they said, you know, boomer, boomer Buddhism, you know, is one thing and we want to, you know, do something different with technology. And so, so they basically, you know, really, they claim technology and a kind of fluency and excitement and enthusiasm for technology as one of the divine, defining characteristics of the millennials. Um, and so I think, you know, they are much more in, you know, in Buddhist geeks, you know, one of the first things I say about it in my analysis of it as postmodern is they reject Buddhism as a total system. Like they explicitly reject that Buddhism has all the answers and they say, let's bring in, you know, like technology, you know, let's bring in, you know, these different, you know, like artificial intelligence, like gaming culture, like what can they add, you know, to a kind of post Buddhist kind of um, spirituality. Um, And so they kind of, you know, they reject the meta-narrative of Buddhism, which, you know, meta-narratives, of course, also really associated with um, modernity. Um, And they they also really blur the line between the secular and the religious. And so they're really interested, which, you know, is a mark of the post-secular, which I argue in the book is, you know, a kind of subsect or a kind of development out of the post-modern. So they're really interested in, 
you know, bringing Buddhist practice into these, you know, unusual spheres, you know, into spaces that you wouldn't normally associate with Buddhist practice. So, you know, one space would be, you know, the computer, you know, Buddhism as play. So in the early Buddhist Geeks conferences, there was a lot of presentations on like how game culture, you know, gaming culture could be a form of Buddhist practice, both explicitly like designing games that had explicit Buddhist themes and also more implicitly. Um, And then they're also really embracive of apps. So, you know, I think one of the early apps, uh, God, what was it called? I've forgotten now. I've forgotten now. Sorry, Mark. Oh, Buddhify. So, you know, Buddhify is this kind of app which, you know, you can meditate while you're, you know, at the gym, you know, while you're on the train. And so, again, it's all about this kind of uh, blurring of, you know, bringing Buddhism out of the retreat center or the monastery or, you know, even the kind of, you know, convert kind of living room into these kind of funky millennial urban spaces. Um, and then, you know, they also kind of embrace a kind of entrepreneurial kind of spirit. Um, so, so yeah, so I just, you know, look at different, you know, different examples of that, different kind of Buddhist apps. Uh, they develop, you know, ways in which you can, you know, play, you know, do like two-person meditation. Um, yeah, just a kind of, it's, it's very playful. I think there's a, I think one of the things about Buddhist geeks especially is, it really had this spirit of playfulness. Um, and again, if you look at, you know, the sociology of religion, you know, one of the marks of postmodern religion, you know, in, in the sociology of religion and that body of work is, you know, religion as play. So David Lyon, uh, he was, he's a, he was a, he's been a big figure in postmodern kind of religion. You know, he talks about uh, Disney, you know, as a form of religion. So I was seeing all of these parallels with the kind of game and culture, um, you know, with, as, as, Essentially, as I was thinking of them as kind of bricolage and kind of postmodern forms of kind of religion. Um, and then I think, um, let's see, other ways, you know, I think a big, a big way is this um, the kind of appearance of the online sangha and virtual communities. Um, you've seen, you know, that's been a big feature of Buddhist Geeks and Meditate IO. And also secular Buddhism, actually. Um, and so you also have you know, the online communities are so interesting because, again, there's a real range of, of types of online communities. Like even in, you know, the short time that I was working on the, well, it was a few years, you know, even in the, you know, in three years of three or four years of, you know, tracking these communities, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go to one community and it'd be really, you know, thriving. Like every day there'd be new posts. And then, you know, I'd get back to it two years later to check, you know, a footnote and I'd see like, oh, it's gone. You know, there's been no activity for like three months. And so I was noticing there's these kind of, you know, like mushrooms were kind of blooming and then dying. But, you know, on the one hand, so these kind of temporal kind of communities that seem to address a need in the moment and then kind of dissolve or be absorbed back into another, you know, into other forms. But then on the other hand, you know, there's communities that seem to be really solid. And, you know, often when I, you know, if I, if I interviewed some people in, in some communities, you know, they would often say, I would be lost without this community because the nearest actual Buddhist Sangha to me is like, you know, 60 minutes drive, you know, and so it was kind, they felt it was a kind of lifeline. 
So, so yeah, so you have got a lot of, you know, variation with these new kind of virtual communities. Um, and then I think you're also seeing hybrids where, you know, you know, physical Buddhist communities are, you know, more and more embracing technology um, to, you know, promote their teachings outside of their own geographical range and also to provide links with people who maybe, you know, move away um themselves and you know another really fascinating element which i don't go into in the book but you know you're now also seeing that transmissions you know in the tibetan tradition you, you're getting transmissions that are happening virtually now like i did i was at a ceremony where i received you know a transmission and a kind of you know practice permission to do a tibetan practice you know virtually which was kind of blowing my mind um so, so yeah, there's just, again, just a lot of variation that's happening with the intersections of Buddhism, you know, and technology from play to, you know, quite serious, traditional ritual, but just happening in, you know, via virtual means. Right. And so you've gestured at some of the generational differences in the use of technology, and you turn to that really fully in Chapter 7, talking about generational shifts, especially between the boomers and the Gen Xers. Um, how would you just briefly kind of characterize that change and what the Gen Xers see as the future of the Buddhist convert Buddhist converts? So the chapter only engages Gen X teachers. So I want to acknowledge, you know, that it's really how they see themselves. Um, it's their aspiration. It's their ideal, their self-image, you know. So I want to make sure I qualify that because, you know, I think, you know, if, we, if, if, if you also had, if I'd also been able to include, you know, boomer voices in that chapter, I'm sure the picture would be more complicated. Um, but my focus was on this. I wanted to understand how Gen X saw the boomers and how they saw themselves. So the Gen Xers basically see the boomers as very individualistic. That was one of the, the first themes that came out. Like they talked about the boomers as they used language like, you know, they are rock stars, they are mavericks you know they are you know individual founders um they're very charismatic um but they're not really good at relation relationship um so there was a feeling that you know that the boomers you know were like you know at the, at the front of the ship you know but weren't great at you know mediating you know responsibility um building community um, they, they kind of lacked both interpersonal relational skills and also kind of more organizational skills. Um, so that was, you know, a kind of, I guess it was a critique of the boomers. Um, they also felt a lot of the Gen X teachers, especially from the Zen lineage, were really struggling with feeling that the te their, you know, their teachers, you know, in some cases they'd actually left their teachers that they didn't want to hand, they didn't trust them. You know, they, they had this sense that they were ready to like be fully individuated and, you know, full teachers on their own. And they kind of felt that their teachers were kind of holding them back kind of a little bit. Um, so it was quite interesting, you know, it was quite 
I always think through a psychoanalytic lens because I'm also trained in psychoanalysis. So I felt like there was a lot of individuation kind of struggles happening. Um, and so by contrast, because often, you know, the Gen X, I noticed the Gen Xers kind of t- def- define themselves in opposition to what the boomers were. So they saw themselves as uh, much more kind of relational. They saw them themselves as much more interested in building kind of peer relationships. Um, they saw, they felt that there was a lot. Another thing about the boomers was that they felt there was a lack of transparency around, you know, certain decisions um, and how, you know, especially how power was kind of negotiated in, you know, in, in the different communities. And so by contrast, they, you know, they said, we want to be more transparent. Like transparency was a word that kept on coming up. Uh, we want to be accountable to each other, you know, so they had this sense of, you know, that they they didn't just want to be accountable to their teachers above them. They wanted to be much more accountable to their, you know, peers, their Dharma siblings. Um, and then there was, you know, there was just a sense of like, they talked about things like how conferences, you know, were run by, you know, boomer teachers, and they you know, talked about it as it's very hierarchical. It's like, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, the head teacher at the, you know, the top of the room. It's a kind of talking head approach. And we want to do it more like, you know, peer to peer activity and, um, you know, more collective and, um, you know, have, you know, groups of people running workshops and have, you know, a lot of feedback. And so there was a kind of organizational, there was a really there was a really distinct kind of organizational style that was coming through with the Gen Xers. Um, and in a way, you know, I think that I think you're seeing that also in the academy, right? You know, the difference between traditional teacher modes and kind of student-centered classrooms. So I think, you know, that we are seeing these cultural shifts in a lot of different, you know, spaces. Um and I think that that was, you know, that's also being reflected in these Dharma, Dharma kind of uh, cultures. Another thing was, you know, they recognized that, you know, some of the boomers had, you know, they were, they did tend to, boomers, you know, do tend to be liberal and that they had, you know, for example, you know, made strides in, you know, moving towards greater kind of gender equality in terms of, you know, the number of female teachers um that there were but they felt that you know that they weren't great with like intersectional you know kind of politics so you know they one of the three things at the start of the uh garrison conference where there was a kind of semi kind of formal ritualized transmission kind of ceremony between the boomers and gen xers the gen xers presented the boomers with three three statements and one of the one of the, the kind of aspirations of what they want to do as a generation. And one of their aspirations was to really, really focus on inclusivity and diversity, you know, especially around race, uh, sexual or in, orientation, uh, gender, you know, diversity, not just women, but, you know, trans, tr- you know, trans identity and gender queer um, identity. So I basically theorize it as a shift from a kind of, you know, more mainstream mainstream liberalism to a more left wing progress progress progressive kind of politic. Um, 
So you know, like Hillary from Hillary Clinton to kind of you know Bernie Sanders might be a, a kind of easier way of expressing it. Okay, so in chapter eight, you move towards your a conclusion, and as part of this, you are outlining three turns in North American convert Buddhism: the critical turn, the collective turn, and the contextual turn. I wonder if you could give us a brief sense of what these are. Yeah, I noticed that you keep on mentioning brief. Sorry, it's quite hard for me. I'm a bit of a talker. So the critical turn, I essentially define it as um, referring to just a kind of growing awareness within these meditation-based convert lineages of their own limitations. So if you look at a book like James Coleman, The New Buddhism, you know, there's this real sense of enthusiasm in these, you know, meditation-based convert lineages, like we're going to fashion this new Buddhism, you know, that's free of, you know, hierarchy and, uh, you know, sexism and misogyny, you know. Um, And I think that, you know, there was this kind of sense of a kind of utopia that you also see, like, say, in the mindfulness revolution. You know, mindfulness is going to change the world. And then, you know, there's a kind of realism kind of, kind of, you know, hits in, you know, that while meditation practice isn't changing the world, you know, that we, you know, we've been a really sincere sangha for 20 years, but we still had this, you know, sexual, you know, misconduct kind of crisis. Um, So the critical term, you know, just kind of refers to that, that that, the sanghas are reflecting critically on some of their own assumptions and limitations. Um, the collective turn um, really refers, I think, to this, you know, realization, you know, of just how, indiv- you know, just, you know, just how individualistic the sanghas have tended to be, um, and that there has been, you know, a neglect of sangha and of community. So, you know, the, the collective turn is like, you know, let's build up community, let's build up inclusive communities. Another way that the collective turn manifests, I think, is really in this, you know, emerging rhetoric of collective liberation that you really see, and especially in engaged Buddhism, which is, you know, just basically the argument that, you know, individual liberation isn't enough, that we have to, you know, address, you know, collective sources of, of, of dukkha, you know, of suffering, you know, including like structural racism, environmental, you know, crises. So that would be, you know, the kind of uh, collective turn. And then the contextual turn is really, again, just a kind of awareness within Buddhist communities and also, the, you know, the, the mindfulness movement as a kind of heir to the Buddhist convert communities of the ways in which how, how, how crucial context is in shaping Buddhist practice. Um, and so, you know, that that can refer to you know a, an awareness of how power and privilege kind of shapes Buddhist practice, um, but it can also aware you know uh, it can also re- refer to you know the awareness of you know how practicing intensive meditation out of a larger you know communal and soteriological context you know can can be quite dangerous. So, you know, for example, there's a lot of interesting work now being d- done on trauma and meditation. You know, w- will there be b- 
Brittany. Is it is it Willoughby Britain or Willoughby Brit Brittany? Oh, sorry, I forgot. Yeah. yeah, she. You know, she's doing some really interesting work on you know the dangers of decontextualized meditation practice. So that's really different work than racial justice and power and privilege work. But in both cases, there is you know this understanding that context is crucial. You know that practices you know are, are different. You know in different contexts essentially and discourse buddhist teachings and practices you know they don't they're not like you know platonic forms they're always taking place in specific contexts and i'll cut through with those contexts so they're the kind of yeah i hope that's a kind of short summary of those three turns right so you've been really generous with your time today and i wonder if we can ask you one more question uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> what's next? What's your new research project on? Can you give us a okay, preview? So, yeah, no, thanks for letting me talk about that just briefly. So I'm working on a new book with um, Amy Langenberg. Amy is a colleague and a friend. She's a specialist in Buddhist sexual ethics and Buddhist feminism. And she's a, you know, she's a, she, she reads Pali and Tibetan and I do contemporary ethnography. And so we're basically combining our skills and we're going to do, we are doing a, a whole book on the sexual misconduct and sexual abuse um, cases across Buddhist lineages. So essentially, we're hoping to structure it by giving three case studies, one from the insight community. Uh, we're hoping to uh, do, do a case study of uh, Noah Levine and the Against the Stream um, you know, case that's been happening this year. And we also want to do a case study from the Zen community, American Zen, and from uh, American Tibetan Buddhism and so we're hoping to you know really kind of go into more depth with you know what's you know what's kind of been happening with the sexual abuse and misconduct and we're also really interested in the ways in which Buddhists are responding to these you know uh, issues and how that's shaping new forms of Buddhist practice and new forms of Buddhist communities so yes I'm, I'm super excited I think it's going to be a lot no, it's it's a it's a very sensitive project, so you know we want to you know take our time with it and give it the care and attention that it needs. But I'm really excited to be working on on that with Amy. And that sounds fascinating. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm Natasha Heller, and this has been New Books in Buddhist Studies. Thank you for listening.